You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome, everyone, to this UN Conference of States Parties to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities side session on disability inclusive peacebuilding, gaps, opportunities, and recommendations. I'm Michael Stein from the Harvard Law School Project on Disability, and it is my pleasure and joy to welcome you to this side session. From Afghanistan to Yemen to Colombia, persons with disabilities are routinely excluded from peacebuilding despite being impacted disproportionately during armed conflict. When they are included, it is most often as beneficiaries and not as full partners. And even then, participation is uneven, not reflecting the diversity and experiences of persons with disabilities. As we approach the two-year anniversary of the UN Security Council Resolution 2475 on disability, armed conflict, and humanitarian emergencies, now is an opportune moment for peacebuilding organizations, multilateral organizations, governments, and organizations of persons with disabilities to jointly renew their commitment to the inclusion of the disability community in peacebuilding. To take stock of progress made, the U.S. Institute on Peace, USIP, the Harvard Law School Project on Disability, HPOD, and our fellow co-sponsors, Human Rights Watch, the Disarmament, Demobilization, and Reintegration Section at the UN Department of Peace Operations, the World Bank, and U.S. International Council on Disabilities are convening this virtual public event to consider gaps and opportunities in disability-inclusive peacekeeping, as well as steps that we can take to provide for the greater inclusion and participation of persons with disabilities. This event will be translated into American Sign Language, and we will also provide closed captioning services. To access the closed captioning, please visit the event page on the USIP website for instructions. We thank in advance the interpreters and captioners who are contracted through the American Sign Language Interpretation Service for enabling us to communicate more effectively with our friends and colleagues. The audience is encouraged to submit questions to the panel via the chat function on the USIP event page. We invite you as well to follow the conversation on Twitter with hashmark disability and peacebuilding and hashmark COSP14. This event will be recorded and archived on the USIP event page. A transcript will also be made available. We likewise invite everyone to visit the Harvard Law School Project on Disability website at www.hpod.org for events, information, and advocacy resources. We've worked over the past 17 years in over 44 countries on all aspects of disability rights, including peacekeeping. And we're very proud to have Gerard Quinn, who you'll hear from in just a moment, as one of our longstanding partners, and Janet Lord, who you'll also hear from, as a founding senior fellow and an individual I've worked with in many, many countries. On another personal note, it's really great to see USIP joining the conversation on disability and peacekeeping. USIP is very well situated, maybe even perfectly situated, for taking a leadership role in this field, and Janet and I benefited greatly from our prior collaborations with them. We're very excited by the presenters today. They're really terrific. 
We'll have introductory remarks by Gerard Quinn, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and there is a lineup of four equally outstanding panelists. Our moderators today are Elizabeth Murray of USIP and Charlotte McLean and Schlappo of the World Bank. Elizabeth will moderate the first half of the event and then hand over the moderation to Charlotte, who she will also introduce. Elizabeth is a senior program officer in USIP's Africa Center, where she manages the Institute's programming in the Central African region. She is also the author of a forthcoming USIP special report on disability inclusive peacekeeping. Elizabeth, over to you. Thank you very much, Michael. And let me say how pleased we are at USIP to be partnering with the Harvard Law School Project on Disability and our other co-sponsors for this event. I hope that we can all continue working together on disability inclusive peace building. And thank you to all of our viewers for joining today. As Michael indicated, we have a very full program. We will begin with framing remarks from the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, Mr. Gerard Quinn, and we will then hear from four panelists who will offer international, regional, and local perspectives on disability-inclusive peacebuilding. And we're eager to hear from you as well, so please do submit your questions using the chat box on USIP's event page. Before I hand the floor to Mr. Quinn, I want to share a bit about his background and note how very honored we are to have him here today. Mr. Quinn was appointed the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities by the UN Human Rights Council in October 2020. Throughout his career, he has played leading roles in the development of disability law and policy in Ireland and the European Union. He was also the lead focal point for the global network of national human rights institutions during much of the negotiation of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Mr. Quinn has been widely recognized for his work on international disability law. He founded the Center on Disability Law at the National University of Ireland and is the author of numerous publications on international and EU disability law. He currently holds two research chairs at the University of Lund and Leeds University. Among Mr. Quinn's priorities for his term as Special Rapporteur, are the protection of people with disabilities in armed conflict and their involvement in peace building. So we are particularly eager for his wisdom today. Mr. Quinn, thank you very much for being here to frame our conversation. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Um, and I'd like at the outset to thank uh, the Harvard Project on Disability and the US Institute of Peace and indeed all of your co-sponsors um, for organizing this very important conversation this afternoon. Uh, it's literally about life and death. I want to give you a sense of how we, wearing the hat of the UN Special Rapporteur, see the issues before um, going on to specify our own distinctive contribution and where we see the field going into the future. Um, first of all, and I'm going to be very brief, um, persons with disabilities were always visible within the Geneva Conventions of 1949, particularly the Fourth Convention on Civilian Protection and the Additional Protect Protocol of 1977. However, and Michael uh, alluded to this at the outset, they were generally visible only partially as human objects, not as human subjects. And that very much reflects the 1940s and the 1970s. Uh, a very, very eminent scholar in Rome in the early 1980s, 
wrote an, an amazingly um, comprehensive document setting out disability policy in the previous three or four decades. It's quite a fascinating study, but it does show the dead weight of the medical model on um, international developments up to that point in time. So these instruments are creatures of their time. This had concrete effects on, for example, in international humanitarian law, the distinction between civilian and military objectives, the obligation of proportionality, for example, even the choice of ordinance and the kind of disproportionate impact it could have on, for example, persons with intellectual disabilities, the duty to give forewarnings, which were generally not accessible in as much as they were given at all, the rescue procedures put in place, the inaccessibility of those, the inaccessibility of safety zones, and of course, the, um, the failure of humanitarian relief to reach everybody it needed to reach. So, so that's kind of like the legacy we're dealing with. Uh, the second main point I want to make is the CRPD can be characterized in many different ways, but the simplest way of putting it is that it pressed the reset button on disability. Instead of being viewed as a medical object now in the future, the CRPD is anchored on personhood, on visibility, on inclusion and equality. And this is a very, very profound reset. It might take us decades to actually follow through on the implications of that particular reset. It sends out ripples toward all of the outer reaches of international law, affecting international humanitarian law, but not just international humanitarian law. We are working at the moment on a very profound issue dealing with the impact of the CRPD on private international law as well. So the CRPD, in my language, amounts to a creative disruption uh, of all points in international law, whether they're proximate or remote. There is no hierarchy of international treaties in international law, but we do have an obligation, an overriding responsibility, not to contribute to the fragmentation of international law, and at its optimum, to achieve greater coherence between, for example, the CRPD and international humanitarian law. Um, the fact that the CRPD would reset and have effects on international humanitarian law was pre-announced by Article 11, the famous Article 11. Bridging, building the bridge between the CRPD and international humanitarian law uh, was the function of the Security Council resolution two years ago which was actually framed quite broadly. It is not narrowly confined to protection in a traditional sense within international humanitarian law. That Security Council resolution, if I remind you, contained detailed recommendations on the duty to protect, on the duty to assist, on the duty to consult, very important, and its plea to end impunity particularly under international criminal law and domestic criminal law. It also called for capacity raising, capacity building, more accurate reporting on the ground with data, and ongoing dialogue between civil society and the UN Security Council. Um, particularly important to note is that the Security Council resolution ranges beyond 
the duty to protect civilians with disabilities in the heat of armed conflict and opens up the continuum which much wider. What am I going to do um, as UN Special Rapporteur? Well, actually our very first thematic report will be on this topic. By the way, our second one will be on artificial intelligence uh, because if we do not deal with ableist assumptions and algorithms, the furthest left behind will be left even further behind and this time with no chance to catch up. So for our first um, thematic report on armed conflict, we've already sent out extensive questionnaires to governments, military authority and civil society. And our report will lay, be laid before the UN General Assembly in the fall. Already an expert consultation has been held and inputs are still being sought. Maybe, maybe our biggest contribution will have to do with framing. There's an ever-present danger of climbing down rabbit holes with the silo effect. To the contrary, while our focus will be on conflicts, we see this as part of a continuum, connecting the conduct of conflicts with rescue operations, humanitarian action, rehabilitation, international criminal responsibility, for example, not using persons with disabilities as human shields, and yes, peacemaking and peace building. Actually, the UN Security Council itself says so. There's now extensive evidence, actually there has been for some time, on the positive contribution of disability groups to the process of peace building. Persons with disabilities know all too well the importance, the supreme importance of peace, moral repair, and rebuilding broken societies. They have shown time and again how humanity can rise above sectarian divides and begin the process of healing. You only look, have to look at the tremendous work of Disability Action, Monica Wilson and others, in Belfast throughout the 1990s, in paving the way for a sustainable peace process on my island. And that's only a small patch of the world. Essentially, they were able to bring people together from all communities, even during the height of political violence, and lay the foundation for a sustainable peace process. More longer term, I certainly anticipate doing more targeted work on peace building and the role of persons with disabilities. I'm sure Charlotte will have similar stories from South Africa, and our good friend Diane Richler certainly has interesting stories from Colombia and other parts of the world. So that's why I'm especially excited about today's side panel. And I assure you, we will certainly be following up with all of you afterwards. Back to you, Elizabeth, and thank you so much. Mr. Quinn, thank you for these very useful remarks. You've given us so much to think about and covered so much ground in your 10 minutes. I, I loved how you brought in um, the examples from Ireland, and we certainly look forward to hearing more examples over the course of this program. We're very eager for your first thematic report, and I think your call for all of us to reach across sectors and not be limited by our silos is, is very important. Um, with that, I am now very pleased to introduce the first of our four panelists. Rashad Nimmer is a conflict advisor in the United States Agency for International Development's Center for Conflict and Violence Prevention, focusing on youth, 
peace and security, social inclusion, and human rights. Prior to his work with USAID, Rashad worked in various development organizations at the intersection of peacebuilding and gender equality and social inclusion. He has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania. He identifies as a Palestinian American, a member of the LGBTQI community, and a proud stutterer. Rashad will kick off our panel with his remarks on the models of disability, the importance of representation of people with disabilities within our organizations, and how we can use data to further inclusion. Rashad, thank you for being here today. The floor is yours. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I'm, I'm extremely happy to be here. Um, and extremely happy that the peace building oh, 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 community is actual uh, is actual 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 uh, actually starting to take this uh, is actually is actually starting to take this subject um, on um, on uh, on uh, on uh, on more uh, on uh, on on uh, on more seriously. Um, I think it's definitely. Uh, it is definitely high time that we do. Um, so, you know, overall, um, at, USAID, uh, um, at, uh, at USAID, we have made um, a lot of really awesome, um, uh, awesome, uh, awesome strides in uh, uh, addressing the needs of people um, in including uh, persons with disabilities in the conflict and post uh, 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 post um, uh, 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 and post post conflict spaces um, our Lehi uh, for, um, our uh, our Lehi war victims fund a response to the growing need for uh, the, the growing need for physical rehabilitation services in 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 conflict um spaces our victims of torture program supports um the uh um the um the uh the the, uh, the, the treatment and healing of uh, people who have uh who have um who have experienced uh who have experienced uh, torture um, through mental health and uh, through through uh, through through mental health and psychosocial support programs, um, and our uh, our humanitarian protection uh, our humanitarian protection protect uh, protection teams work to ensure that protection principles uh, um, gender age and um, and social in inclusion are in um, are uh, in our humanitarian programs um, in order to protect persons uh, who have disabilities in 
uh, in the complex spaces, you know, but uh, all of that being said, there is a lot more work that we have to do in order to equitably include persons with disabilities uh, in the peace building processes at USAID and also kind of in our in the in the broader peace building, uh, the, uh, the broader peace, broader, broader peace building area of work. Um, so the following, the following, the following four points that I am, uh, I am hoping I can raise um, are areas for us uh, to continue our work on, um, and I hope that it is a call to action. Uh, uh, obvious, uh, ob um, ob uh, I hope it is a call to action, not just uh, a call to action, not action, not just for my agency, but for the peace building community writ large. Um, so the point number one, um, it is time for the peace building community to move beyond medical and charity models um, and, uh, and begin to integrate what we know from the social and human rights models. You know, uh, oh, oh, persons uh, with persons, persons, persons with disabilities um, are not just are not just symbols of the of the of the wanton violence of uh, of the of the uh, of the of the humanitarian space. Um, we also must be. We also must be. We also must be. We also must be moving away from the language, uh, the language of vulnerability and the unequal, uh, unequal, unequal, unequal power dynamics that this, uh, that that uh, that this narrative evokes. Um, we have to start to. Uh, we have to start. To actual actually recognize the agency and voice and propensities of, of, of peace building of persons who have disabilities, um, you know we know that disability activists across the conflict lines have remained connected uh, throughout the world. Um, we all have a shared we all have a shared uh, a shared enemy. In a, um, we all have a shared enemy in ableism at the end of the day. Um, the point that I have for number two is that we uh, definitely need data. Um, in, uh, in much of our work, uh, the usage of data in, um, uh, in how we analyze uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, um, the uh, the situations of our programs is the is the the singular way to garner improved resources, um, and yet we uh, uh, and yet we have uh, we have not began uh, we have not begun to routinely track. Uh, um, we have not begun to we have not begun to to routinely track disability related data um, in any of our projects or initiatives. You know we have access to uh, uh, we have had access to the Washington oh, 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 group sets um, for now almost oh, 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 
oh, oh, 20, you know, years. Um, and yet, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and yet we haven't, uh, truly uh, had them integrated into our, uh, into, um, our monitoring or learning of plans. You know, and we also have to stop thinking uh, about, uh, we have to stop thinking about, um, about uh, have to stop thinking about disability as a problematic or negative thing uh, in what we ask. Um, and we have to stop only relating it oh, to health. Um, we can and should be re acquiring this information from our partners um, and those that we work with around the world. Uh, point three is that peace building organize, uh, -building, uh, organ uh, organizations, agencies, and institutions need to be composed of, of people with diverse experiences, which includes the perspectives of persons with disabilities. Um, it is not just about the representation, but actually making sure that people from historically marginalized backgrounds actually have a say over the over the design of programs, the facility rotation of resources and the, the formulation of policy. Um, it also extends to who we partner with. We have to be more in, uh, we have to have more in um, intentional outreach with OPDs um, in the spaces, uh, in the spaces, in the spaces, in the spaces, the spaces that we work. Uh, the last point I am going to make um, is that we need to ground our work not just in intersectional approaches, but in uh, but instead also in uh, also in also in, also in solidarity building. Inclusion, equity, and justice are not resource scarce. Uh, we must begin to change that. We must begin to change that thinking. Um, it is important to not only think about disability as being singular, but also how it intersects with other with other facets of who we are, especially in the conflict to post oh, 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 conflict 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 spaces. Um, we have an op we have a really great opportunity to be uh, we have really great oper opportunity. Uh, opportunity to begin building stronger oh, connections with the women peace and security and youth oh, peace and security security movements. How do we start to? How do we all start to um, start to? How do we all start to ensure that um, that oh, disability? Um, how do we start to ensure that disability rights and equity are key components of this work? How do we start to co-conspire with our with our with uh, with the, the people who we work with uh, in other? areas of um, other areas of uh, other areas of uh, other areas of human rights um, human rights and dignity uh, you know I believe that uh, 
I believe that there is no better time for us oh, to begin oh, 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 building, um, oh, 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 build to begin building solidarity across the inclusive oh, peace building field. Um, so I hope it's not just opening up a conversation, but that we can actually start to chart a path forward. Um, and with that, I want to say a huge thank you, and I will hand the mic back to you, Elizabeth. Thanks. Rashad, thank you very much. These remarks were so thought-provoking. What you said about building solidarity and ties across organizations is, is a really interesting point. I'm also so glad that you raised the importance of people with disabilities being in decision-making roles, policy-making roles, um, roles where they're designing programs. It's incredibly important and we don't talk about it enough and we need to talk about it and do something about it. And lastly, as you know, our conversations about data over the past couple of months have been so enlightening to me. So I'm really glad you could bring in the point about um, the need for better data to improve our inclusion. So thank you. And I'm pleased to now introduce our next speaker, Amina Cherimovich. Amina is a senior researcher on disability rights at Human Rights Watch. She leads the organization's work on the protection of people with disabilities in situations of risk and humanitarian emergencies worldwide. Before joining Human Rights Watch, Amina worked with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe's mission to Bosnia and Herzegovina and with the State Prosecutor's Office of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Amina is going to provide some perspectives on the international frameworks for the inclusion of people with disabilities. Amina, thank you for being here. Over to you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And uh, Rashad, thank you so much for the, for the points that you made as well. Um, I will start by taking a step back. By now, we, with all the research that has been done, we do know that people with disabilities are disproportionately impacted by armed conflict. We know that there are at higher risks during attacks. Human Rights Watch research in Cameroon, Central African Republic, Gaza, Syria, South Sudan, and Amnesty International research in Yemen found that persons with disabilities face severe difficulties fleeing armed attacks on their communities. People with disabilities are also disproportionately impacted when losing accessible homes and assistive devices. Throughout the crisis in Cameroon, Human Rights Watch has documented numerous cases of people with disabilities whose homes were burned by the security forces, leaving them without accessible home environments, shelters, and assistive devices. We have also evidence that people with disabilities who manage to flee violence have often faced barriers getting essential and crucial humanitarian assistance that other people don't from using latrines to accessing food distribution. They also face obstacles to access healthcare, support services, and education. Conflict and lack of access to services has a devastating impact on the mental health of people with disabilities. Here in Human Rights Watch research in Syria shows that the conflict and lack of access to services has had a devastating impact on the mental health of children with disabilities there. Finally, we also know that conflict exacerbates stigma, resulting in violence and abuse. In 2017, aid workers in South Sudan told Human Rights Watch that they have encountered cases of relatives physically abusing people with disabilities, beating them or forcibly taking their food or other possessions from them. Current Human Rights Watch research on the situation of children with disabilities in Syria on 
uncovered the practice of shackling, while the chaining of children with disabilities existed prior to Syrian civil war. It has increased since the conflict started, according to humanitarian workers we interviewed. So if we know, and we have known it for a while, that people with disabilities are disproportionately impacted by armed conflict, why are they still not part of every effort to prevent a conflict and to build peace? Justice and post-conflict reconciliation activities generally do not include people with disabilities, and if they do, they usually do not represent the diversity of the disability community. In 2019, the UN Security Council adopted a resolution recognizing the critical contributions of persons with disabilities and their representative organizations to conflict prevention, peace building, and addressing the root causes of conflict. And in that regard, the UN Security Council urged states to enable the meaningful participation and representation of persons with disabilities. There is another resolution I want to mention today. And going back to the point that Rashad made, his last point, which was about building solidarity among the peace building movement. Um, the resolution I wanted to mention is the Security Council resolution from 20 years ago. It's the resolution 1325 on women peace and security. This resolution affirmed that peace and security efforts are more sustainable when women are equal partners in the prevention of violent conflict, the delivery of relief and peace building efforts. The resolution is 20 years old. However, there is currently no known tracking of representation of women with disabilities in conflict prevention or peace negotiations either in formal or informal roles. We often refer to Medin Mustafa, a young disability and refugee activist from Syria, as the first woman with a disability to brief the UN Security Council on the situation of people with disabilities. She did that in April 2019. Following her briefings, some things did change. For example, for the first time in more than a decade, the Secretary General's 2019 report on the protection of civilians documented experiences of people with disabilities. And as has been mentioned already, the UN Security Council adopted the resolution 2475. Since Nujin, two other women with disabilities have briefed the UN Security Council, including in the most recent open debate on women, peace and security. So where is the gap? Today, I will focus the gap at the level of the UN Security Council and UN agencies and the lack of implementation of the resolution 2475 in country-specific contexts. For example, in the UN Security Council on Central African Republic, there is strong language calling for the MINUSCA, which is the UN peacekeeping operation in Central African Republic, to assist authorities to ensure increased participation of women, youth, faith-based organizations, refugees, IDPs in the peace agreement. There is no mention of people with disabilities or making sure or call to make sure that these processes are accessible to people with disabilities. While the most recent resolution by the UN Security Council on the renewal of the UN peacekeeping operation in South Sudan 
expresses serious concerns about the dire situation of persons with disabilities. There is no mention of this group when the set resolution calls for full, effective, and meaningful participation, again, of women, youth, faith groups, and civil society in the peace process. There is no mention to ensure these efforts are accessible to people with disabilities. So here are a few critical next steps. And I would also just like to underline that everything that Rashad already said applies here as well. Uh, when it comes to the UN Security Council Resolution 2475, it needs to be translated into country-specific action. In fact, all UN Security Council resolutions and debates that discuss conflict prevention and peace should include a specific reference to the UN Security Council on the protection and participation of people with disabilities. And it should call for full, effective, and meaningful participation of men, women, and children with disabilities. Human Rights Watch is sending a letter this week to all the UN Security Council member states to urge them to include children with disabilities in the upcoming open debate on children and armed conflict scheduled for June 28. So far, children with disabilities have largely been left out of the UN Security Council debate on children and armed conflict. UN agencies, and in particular UN peacekeeping mechanisms, should constantly and meaningfully consult people with disabilities and their representative organizations, including when relevant mechanisms conduct country visits, and they should ensure that people with different types of disabilities are included in conflict prevention and peacekeeping efforts. Governments should include ex explicit reference and allocate resources to people with disabilities and their representative organizations in their national and foreign policy efforts on peace and security. Finally, in order to ensure the meaningful participation of people with disabilities in peacemaking, peace building efforts, we need to ensure accessibility in each and every piece of the political. We need to ensure accessibility in each and every peace and political process, including by providing accessible information, transport, and adequate resources. I'm really excited to hear from my colleague, Fawn, who will talk after me and who will talk about his participation in peace building efforts in Cameroon. Thank you, Elizabeth and colleagues, for convening this important meeting. Thank you very much. I mean, I, that was a really wonderful overview of the international system. I think your calls um, for the international system to ensure that 2045 translates to country-specific action are very important. Um, the calls for consultation, um, consistent consultation of persons with disabilities and their representative organizations, um, and your point on accessibility was so important as well. Our colleague Fon will touch on these in a few moments. Um, he'll be our final speaker, um, but I first want to introduce our next speaker, who will be Professor Janet E. Lord. Janet is currently serving as a Senior Research Fellow to the Harvard Law School Project on Disability and as advisor to UN Special Rapporteur Gerard Quinn. Prior to her current role, she served as a Senior Partner and Director of Human Rights and Inclusive Development at Blue Law International, LLP. Janet has also served as legal advisor and advocacy director at the International Landmine Survivor Organization and participated in several different capacities in the negotiations for the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. 
She's taught courses in international public law, international human rights law, and disability law, and has published widely on these topics and currently serves on the board of directors of the United States International Council on Disabilities. Janet, we're looking forward to your remarks on demobilization, disarmament, and reintegration, and what can be done to make programs and policies in the post-conflict period more inclusive, as well as some regional perspectives from your work in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. Thanks for being here, and the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Uh, it's a delight to be here. I want to thank uh, USIP and the World Bank and USAID uh, very much indeed, and, and acknowledge also um, that a lot of my uh, experience on this topic and my interest in this topic of, of DDR um, stems from uh, research work that I've done with my home institution, HPOD, um, and also a recent collaboration that I've had the opportunity to uh, participate in with the UN DDR division. Uh, also uh, another co-sponsor of this event. And so, you know, Gerard has emphasized uh, in his opening remarks that the CRPD is anchored in, in personhood, in visibility, in inclusion and equality. So my question then is, um, what is the challenge and opportunity for peace building in this specific context of disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration of ex-combatants, uh, and also those associated with fighting forces? So at the outset, I want to acknowledge that the reintegration of ex-combatants with disabilities is an ancient problem, right? So as long as there's been conflict, there have been ex-combatants with disabilities, some of whom will have very significant support needs. And unfortunately, uh, societies have consistently neglected to address the discrete needs of those, those ex-combatants, both from the time of the ancient Greeks to the present time. Now, the legend of Philoctetes in, uh, set out in the Trojan cycle centers on a soldier with a disability who was turned ex-combatant after traumatic injury to his foot. Now, the odious nature of his wound led his fellow soldiers to scorn him and abandon him on a desert island. So there he was, he was angry and seething uh, against Odysseus and the Greeks who had left him. He was nursing a passion for violent revenge, but it was soon revealed to the Greeks that this ex-combatant disabled soldier, a distinguished archer, possessed the magic bow of Hercules. And so an oracle had revealed to the Greeks that unless Philoctetes was returned along with his bow, they would face certain defeat against the Trojans. So the abandonment of Philoctetes turned out to be potentially catastrophic for the survival of the Greek state itself. So a young soldier, Neopolemus, was dispatched to the island, managed to connect with Philoctetes, convince him to turn away from his plan for revenge. And so ex-combatant and Beau returned. He was restored to full citizenship, and the Greek state itself was preserved. So I think this legend reveals that the exclusion of ex-combatants with disabilities can, in fact, have deleterious consequences and, and left to fester disaffection leads to disempowerment and it reinforces exclusion. And that is evidenced in a number of contemporary post-conflict cases. So I wanna talk a little bit about a slice of the protection pillar, a dimension of the peace building continuum that relates to disarmament, demobilization, and in particular reintegration of ex-combatants with disabilities. 
So then what do DDR processes um, set out to achieve in the first place? Well, they aim to transition fighting forces and persons associated with fighting forces to civilian status through disarming and demobilizing combatants and facilitating their peaceful and productive reintegration into their communities. So the aim is essentially for all DDR participants to lay down their weapons, to attain sustainable employment and livelihoods, um, an adequate standard of living in their communities, uh, and to participate in the legal and social environment of their communities and of their nations. And this issue clearly has particular salience given the adoption of Security Council Resolution 2475. And now that resolution aims to raise awareness of the need to involve persons with disabilities in conflict prevention processes, in reconstruction, um, and in post-conflict reconciliation. The resolution also affirms the need to expand knowledge of the specific needs of persons with disabilities, including ex-combatants with disabilities, in peacekeeping missions, uh, improve the supporting system on conditions experienced by persons with disabilities in armed conflict, and it makes the case for turning attention to the prospects of DDR processes toward achieving an inclusive reintegration of ex-combatants. And here, with regard to uh, post-conflict reintegration, I'm adopting the UN understanding um, that, you know, whether men, women, or children, we're talking about um, social, economic, and legal processes by which ex-combatants transition to civilian status, attain sustainable employment and standard of living, and participate uh, in their society. So reintegration is dynamic. It's open-ended primarily taking place in communities at the local level. And in contrast with more traditional definitions of reintegration, um, I think we need to see it as an integral component of development that includes legal and institutional mechanisms of transition, um, transitional justice mechanisms, law and policy development that often goes hand in hand in the uh, post-conflict uh, redevelopment and participation in institutions of government, whether local councils or or the work of national human rights commissions or decision making uh, at, at any level. So what do we know uh, from DDR practices? Uh, well, anecdotal evidence tells us that there's a major gap in addressing the discrete needs of ex-combatants with disabilities and post-conflict reintegration, um, notwithstanding uh, the acknowledgement that physical and mental trauma impacts civilians and ex-combatants alike in very large numbers, and that reintegration is vital to post-conflict uh, peaceful transition. So take, for example, the case of, of DDR in Colombia um, and whether uh, ex-combatants with disabilities were effectively accommodated. In fact, in Colombia, they were very active, a very important constituency um, in the call for more participatory and accountable uh, governance, but overall the results suggest that there were severe uh, procedural and substantive shortcomings, um, both during the drafting of the peace agreement and the actual implementation of DDR processes that has, uh, in many instances, um, exacerbated the exclusion of ex-combatants with disabilities 
uh, from available opportunities. So the jury is still out on that, but there's, there's certainly in, uh, issues with implementation. In Sri Lanka, um, studies found that former members of the Tamil Tigers who acquired physical or mental disability were less likely to have access to support from government, such as cash transfers or training opportunities, than ex-combatants with disabilities who had served in the Sri Lankan army. So more than a, a decade later, ex-combatants uh, from the uh, Tamil uh, Tigers group experienced very, uh, very much higher rates of stigma, poverty, and social neglect. We saw a similar pattern with regard to um, Nicaragua, Nicaragua with ex-contra groups, Afghanistan. Um, we saw civilian landmine survivors reporting land allotments and other benefits for former officers and soldiers, but not for, for civilians. So very often there's this disconnect and differ differentiation between uh, you know, access to benefits and sometimes that is written right into the legal framework. In Liberia, uh, ex-combatants with disabilities uh, formed begging bands that contributed to street crimes. Um, uh, we saw the existence of segregated camps of ex-combatants with disabilities, and that was either evidence of failed reintegration altogether or a decidedly wrong-headed attempt at meeting specific needs through targeted non-inclusive intervention. And that experience points to efforts uh, that need to be made to prepare communities for reintegration um, of, of ex-combatants. In Zimbabwe, other factors have appeared to hinder reintegration for ex-combatants uh, a, a while back. Uh, among them, uh, lack of information about the existence of services, transport barriers. Um, for example, 37% of war veterans with disabilities in, Z in Zimbabwe did not receive demobilization allowances because they had self-demobilized following injury. And so they had no knowledge of their entitlements and they, in any case, couldn't travel to get their benefits. In Mozambique, ex-soldiers with disabilities more than once resorted to violent land grabbing in response to a perceived lack of attention to their specific, to specific needs um, and, and so on. Um, Burundi is a, is a kind of an in interesting case, um, a little bit more promising. Um, although uh, there were post hoc uh, measures to address the needs of, of certain ex-combatants with disabilities um, because the initial DDR process had not met their needs. Um, and there were a group of them with very significant support needs. And in that particular case, the World Bank came in, um, assessed the exceedingly poor living conditions of a group of disabled ex-combatants uh, who were in really appalling conditions, um, but yet were reluctant to leave. Um, and emergency funding was used there to address their unmet needs, to build accessible housing, and to work with that community to uh, move them back into the community. Um, so that is uh, that's some promise, but we need to do better, obviously, and actually plan. So where are we now and how do current efforts to advance DDR uh, align with the Security Council Resolution 2475? Well, we have a new UN disability strategy and that's working change throughout the entire UN system. As we well know, um, we have underway, as I understand it, a UN, the very first victim assistance standard, part of the mine action uh, work. Um, it's long in coming. There should have been a victim assistance standard a long time ago. I don't love the terminology used, um, but there's clearly an opportunity for uh, a more progressive rendering of what 
victim assistance is and what reintegration means in the context of of the landmine treaty and the cluster munitions treaty um, it's an area where opds need to show up and actually weigh in that hasn't happened as as much as it should have sadly um, we also have um, a revision of the integrated disarmament demobilization and reintegration standards first adopted in 2006, right around the time the CRPD was adopted. It did not have a disability module or standard, um, but that is now uh, underway. I've had the uh, opportunity to collaborate with the folks at the Bond Conversion Center and the, uh, the DDR division of the UN on that process. And I think that's really promising um, as well. But again, OPDs need to, um, to engage in, in, in those processes of implementation to make those standards really come alive. So I think including ex-combatants with disabilities and post-conflict processes needs to be seen as an important part of a country's overall development. The barriers facing ex-combatants with disabilities need to be uh, placed within the broader context of law, policy, and institutional change in post-conflict environments. Uh, legal empowerment initiatives are really important. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get differentiated obligations and commitments uh, by government, which often leads to, uh, you know, disaffection between different groups of ex-combatants with disabilities or between ex-combatants with disabilities and civilians uh, with disabilities. So the legal piece should not be ignored. Um, and other initiatives that can help connect groups to uh, decision-making, institution building, social services, and resources. Um, and above all, of course, throughout a DDR process, harnessing the expertise of organizations of persons with disabilities um, in the actual planning and design of DDR to know what is available locally and wrapping those groups into that is, is really critical. Um, and it's important in DDR planning, in, um, in camp uh, construction, in reintegration, into back into the community. Uh, where resources and supports may be very limited, and in the provision of peer support and other other types of support. So um, I will conclude there, and um, I, we will be sharing some of the research uh, with Elizabeth's team, so that can be sent out to uh, all of the participants. So thank you so very much. Thanks very much, Janet. Those remarks were, were so broadening. Uh, you covered so much, and I'm, I'm really grateful. I, I took note of your comment that reintegration is a dynamic and open-ended process, um, which I think is an important call to all of us to, to kind of reach across silos and not always think in our, our project-based um, manners. I also thought your examples were really fascinating um, and, uh, and really sobering, and, and was, was struck by your saying that um, ex-combatants with disabilities are an important constituency in, in the Colombian processes, but yet severe procedural and substantive shortcomings exist at the same time, which I think you know, loops back to Rashad's point about the need for more data and monitoring to really, really understand how these processes are impacting people with disabilities. So thank you. Um, I'm now very pleased to introduce our final speaker, who will be Fon Diodonne. Fon is the national coordinator of Think Big Association in Cameroon. In this capacity, he helps to rehabilitate victims of violence through sports, peace building, and reconciliation programs. Fon is based in Berenda, Cameroon, which is a conflict zone, so he brings to us an on-the-ground perspective. 
He's an athlete and a member of the Cameroon Youth Mediators Network. He serves as a, as a community consultant and data expert working in the field to map and respond to the needs of persons with disabilities. Today, he's going to share his perspectives and experiences on the inclusion of people with disabilities and peace building in Cameroon and make some recommendations. Due to internet connectivity issues, we pre-recorded phone yesterday, um, but we actually also have him here live today to answer questions. Um, so can we please roll the video of phone? Good morning, good day, fellow viewers. Uh, I'm glad to be part of this program on, uh, on the U.S. Institute for Peace of including persons with disabilities in peace building. I want to say that the solution in Cameroon about persons with disabilities and peace building is really deplorable. First of all, before the crisis, persons with disabilities have greatly been excluded from, from development programs, not to talk of peace building. But uh, as we speak, people with disabilities are not invited to participate in conferences and seminars, and people with disabilities, they don't actually know what is going on. And persons with disabilities are the highest affected are the, the victims of war because their healthcare has been destroyed, their accessibility has been destroyed, they don't have access to humanitarian aid and many other things. But as a proposal, I think that people with disabilities we need to start first by sensitization because there is this prejudice that persons with disabilities they have nothing to contribute. But these persons are great contributors in peace building and nation building. So we need to have sensitization, we need to organize workshops and seminars where persons with disabilities who are leaders should be trained and they should be drilled on ethics of peace building because we cannot give what we don't, we don't have. We have to understand that due to our cultural backgrounds in Cameroon, most persons with disabilities are looked upon as burdens, they are looked upon as, uh, as cursed, they are looked upon as those who cannot contribute anything and they are always left out. So there is always this intentional exclusion maybe by not making information come in inclusive format for example the visual the hearing paid those having mobility impediments we are not having access to participate in peace building and uh, we can do tv programs we can do radio programs we can organize seminars and workshops and invite these persons and train them even on how to use zoom train them even on how to use online platforms because persons with disabilities their greatest tool is communication so at the level of rehabilitation as peace building i think most of those who perpetrate violence are in effect trying to avenge their their troubles for example we have had an increase in the number of people with disability due to the crisis some from gunshots some burnt in the houses some you know are, are maimed some are tortured and they become disabled so in the meantime they, they will always avenge they always have this spirit of vengeance so rehabilitating them into programs will actually make them become peace ambassadors and uh, as a victim of conflicts we always have this attitude of avenging we always have this attitude of fighting back so in my program what i've been doing is some who have amputations due to conflict we enroll them into sports as a form of rehabilitation we start making them to leave back all the vengeance attitude all the suicidal thoughts you know you know this also leads to hate speech it leads to a lot of things when they start thinking of vengeance when they start thinking of 
suicide they start they start hurting they start sharing hate they start sharing violent messages and videos and uh, we are the rehabilitation can really help in peace building in that we can be able to bring victims of war together we create we come up with recreational programs for them which will go a long way to make them peace ambassadors and i believe also that sharing of stories involving them into inclusive sports program involving them into kind of recreational activities that will make them have restore back their self-esteem because first of all acquiring a disability at a later age in life is much more traumatic than living from childhood with a disability and acquiring a disability because of conflict or being pulled out of your house and shot and maybe your leg is amputated or maybe your arm is taken off it has a different dimension of trauma and and it gives you the sense of vengeance it gives you that thought and always there's always that impression to avenge so based on the un resolutions like 2250 that is talking about including young people into peace building and also the un resolution that is concerning us persons with disabilities in peace building that's 2475 we think that if we go by you know by even by the 2010 law of cameroon which is talking about including persons with disabilities most of these things are on paper so we should come now to an active stage where we do things intentionally by bringing persons with disabilities together even at the level of the united nations they should be able to speak for themselves we should we, we should create a safe space for persons with disabilities those who acquire disability and those who are actually victims of violence uh, who do not have a disability due to the conflict directly and those who have a disability due to a conflict directly we should bring these persons together and you'll be it will be so amazing of what they will share and their energy that they will put in place when it comes to this building thank you so much looking forward to meet you again looking forward that we implement what we're learning today thank you so much i'm waiting for your questions i'm waiting to connect with you as we move ahead for building an inclusive and a peaceful world thank you so much concrete suggestions that can motivate us to action about how to get people with disabilities in leadership roles in peace building. I thought you built very nicely on Janet's remarks um, about um, the, the disaffection that can occur when people experience violence um, and also built nicely on Amina's points about the fact that people with disabilities are disproportionately affected by conflict, so they should be front and center of every peace building effort. I'm now going to turn the program over to my co-moderator, Charlotte McLean Malapo, who is the Global Disability Advisor of the World Bank Group. Charlotte is a widely recognized expert in disability inclusive development, and Charlotte had the great idea to pull the conversation together today. Charlotte has many qualifications. I'll just mention that before joining the World Bank, she was appointed by President Barack Obama in 2011 as USAID's Coordinator for Disability and Inclusive Development and that earlier in her career, she was appointed by President Nelson Mandela to the South African Human Rights Commission focusing on social and economic rights, disability rights, and child rights. Charlotte, thank you for the key role that you've played in making today happen, and over to you for Q&A. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, and this has been a fascinating and a very, very interesting conversation, and we have loads of questions. Um, we don't have too much time, so what I'm gonna do is bundle them a bit. And the, the first set, 
perhaps I'll just read out and then go to the various speakers and then come back to the next set. So I'll ask you all to be concise in your response. So the first question is really around um, how do we ensure that we can encourage donors to commit support to organizations of persons with disabilities? The question is being asked in the context of the withdrawal of troops from the US um, from Afghanistan. But I think the point there really is how do we ensure that disability programs and rehab centers continue to uh, be sustainable and accessible to persons with disabilities? So perhaps, uh, Rashad, you might want to take that question, okay? The second question is uh, a question around youth peace and security agenda. And Fawn, you began to speak about that, uh, but perhaps you could you know, talk a bit about how we can better include young persons with disabilities in peace building. That would be, that would be a question to you. And then a question for Gerard, and this is really around how do we rethink the concept of security, human security, to make it more inclusive for people with disabilities? So if the three of you could answer those questions briefly, I'll come back to the next set. Prashad, do you want to go first? Sure. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think um, that at, I mean, at USAID, we, we, we have specific, 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 specific funds that every year have to go to this work, right? And so um, we are not going to stop this work. Uh, it is happening. But, you know, I think that there is a big role to play in terms of, of the advocacy of uh, our partners. You know, I think we want to see more, um, you know, because we are a huge agency, because all of, um, all of, the, all of the donor institutions, you know, have uh, people on the inside who are extremely smart, who are extremely active, but we also have to hear from the people in the spaces that we work and with the organizations, you know, that we work with, that, that people actually are caring uh, uh, people actually, um, people actually, people actually, actually do care about this subject. Um, I also would say, you know, I think going back to my point, I think uh, by having more people who have people who people who have disabilities in these places who 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 are helping to facilitate the facilitate the resources helping to create the policy you know it's not going to be seen as a nice to have it's going to be seen as is going to be seen as going to be seen as a need to have right and i think we need to make that shift and i think it hasn't happened yet but i think we are we are on the way towards that Thanks, Rashad. Bonnie, if you could be very concrete in terms of some ideas around youth with disabilities. Fawn, are you still there? Okay, okay, yeah. Th right. Thank you, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's been an amazing opportunity to meet all of you. Uh, first of all, I want to say that I am not only a person with disability, I am a victim of violence, I'm a victim of conflict. So I will be sharing from a point of experience. I will not be sharing from a point of reading from any novel. I will be sharing it from a point of, uh, from the victim point of view. So first of all, I will say that the first prime 
way that we can include persons with disabilities into peace building is by education, is by education, because you cannot offer what you don't have. Most persons with disabilities in our context are not educated, maybe simply because of some cultural backgrounds and ignorance. Most persons with disabilities, they are not educated. So we are at a point where we are always beneficiaries of whatever. Yes. And then secondly, the victims of conflicts with disabilities should be enrolled into programs that will give them an opportunity to become leaders or ambassadors in peace building. Yes, that is my second point. The, the third point is that persons, there should be sensitization. We need to do a data, a database analysis in our communities. And after the identification, we, we organize programs, bring them together. First of all, give them a psychosocial therapy program, trauma healing, before we can be able to, to introduce them onto peace building. We need to educate persons with disabilities on ICT programs, even on how to use their phones to communicate, especially the indigenous persons with disabilities in the conflict zones of Bamenda or in Boya, in Kidaris in Cameroon, the conflict zones. We need to, 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 to include them into educational programs, train them on how to use the, the, the social media, on hate speech and all of that. Then we can be able now to launch a, a, a general campaign for them now to go on the field or to go on media, whatever, as peace as peace leaders. And uh, the, another way to include persons with disabilities in peace building is by providing them the, 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 the necessary resources. First of all, by, by empowerment. And uh, you know, you, you, cannot, you cannot take a person with disability who has lost everything from business, to, to everything, and then you, you include the person with disability into a program, they need to be empowered economically. They need to, they need to have sustainable programs that they are able to, to, to relieve them first, and then we get them, we get them now as, as, as evidence of, of ruling back violence. And then- uh, Thank you, Fan. I'm, I'm going to have to cut you off there, Fan, I'm sorry. I, I wanna to get to Gerard to, to have him talk a bit about um, how do we rethink the concept of human security? And then I do want to come to Janet and Amina for a last question. Gerard? Thanks, Charlotte. Um, this is fascinating. Uh, the duty to protect, the concept of protection hasn't gone away, even under the UNCRPD. There are very clear provisions on protecting people with disabilities against violence, exploitation, and abuse, and protecting the physical mental and moral integrity of the individual. But the point is that it's not protection in the old sense, it's protection keyed into a much broader agenda of human empowerment and so forth. So I think that has implications for how we reframe protection within, for example, international humanitarian law. It's not just protection in, in a paternalistic sense, it also has some elements of empowerment uh, and, and nurturing individuals because they're not just victims of violence, but they're actually agents of change in rebuilding their own societies into the future. So I think um, the conversation has only really begun about a more holistic conception of protection into the future. Um, I'll stop there for the sake of time. Thank you so much, Charlotte.
Thanks, Gerard. And hopefully we get more um, information about that in, in your forthcoming report, because I think that that's, that's really an important piece. So I want to ask this question perhaps to Amina. And, and the question is, you know, given the wide range of disabilities that exist, how should development practitioners create an inclusive environment without over-generalizing the needs of persons with disabilities? Um, so that's, that's the one question. And then the second question, and perhaps this one goes to Janet, was, you know, given that there's so many variances in, in how veterans, civilians, and ex-combatants with disabilities are treated in post-conflict societies, how does this impact reconciliation and peace building? So perhaps the two of you could respond to those two questions. Um, I will be very brief. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Um, so I think instead of looking at it from a needs perspective, we have to look at it from the rights perspective. That people with disabilities do have right to protection, they have right to life, they have right to education, to access services. Um, and I think that's the shift that needs to be done. And something that both Fawn and Rashad and everyone else spoke about, it is about um, changing and, and moving away from the vulnerability, um, vulnerability um, standpoint of view. Thank you. And that was a point that Rashad had also really emphasized the importance of moving away from the vulnerability lens. Uh, Janet, would you like to come in? Yeah, that's a really tough question, but it's a really great question. And it reminds me of how, when we were in the treaty drafting process, did we address the heterogeneity of disability, right? The difference, the variation. That's really hard. Um, but I think we know enough to know that it should not, cannot be done in a sort of siloed fashion, fashion where you're not working proactively to bring um, you know, different constituencies within the disability community together to participate in these post-conflict peace building processes, whether it's, you know, uh, seizing the opportunity so that local OPDs can actually participate and be helpful and supportive in a DDR process, um, helping to figure out, you know, what are the needs, you know, whether it's in the, the, the WASH sector or the uh, building sector or providing peer support in a reintegration or awareness raising around disability for when folks come back and are reintegrated in the community um, after they're demobilized, right? So um, it's a tough question, but we know now currently what happens typically does not work and it leads to a real fragmentation uh, within the disability community and then between civil society at large in the disability community. So look, I mean, there's still lots of lots more questions. We're clearly not going to get to them right now, uh, but I think this is an indication of how how much interest there is in this this the subject, and why and 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 the importance of us taking it forward. I mean, I think we heard from Gerard in his framing remarks about the focus on uh, his work around persons with disabilities in armed conflict, and I think we're all looking forward to the forthcoming report in September. Uh, we heard about the Security Council Resolution 2475 and its importance and relevance to our discussion today. We heard about the importance of the CRPD and the massive potential that it brings to bear in the work, in the work that we're doing. From Rashad, we heard about the importance of making that paradigm shift uh, to, to models that are more human rights and uh, social based. 
Uh, we heard about the importance of organizations of persons with disabilities, the need for having better data and monitoring. From Amina, we heard about Resolution 1325 on women and girls with disabilities and how that needs to continue to be monitored and how we can't let sight of, of that particular piece. Um, and from Janet, we heard about the importance of um, DDR and ensuring that persons with disabilities are included in those processes uh, with lots of great examples. And from Fawn, we had some great concrete su suggestions of what we can do at country level. So look, it's been an amazing discussion. Clearly, I haven't done justice to wrapping it up because it's been so rich, but I would like to think, thank all of you for joining and we will continue to take this discussion forward. So thank you everybody for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.